Welcome to the Canteen Podcast, a show for anyone who has feelings about food. Join host Ali Houston as guests open up about their relationship with food and their thoughts on nutrition. Nourish yourself with the Canteen Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of the Canteen Podcast. I'm your host, Ali Houston. Our guest today is Dr. Sylvia Karpagam, who is an Indian public health doctor. It's a very revealing episode where we discuss the causes of widespread malnutrition in India, including withholding of nutritious animal foods and the role that caste and religion play uh, in influencing traditional eating and public policy. Also, how until recently, uh, love of animals hasn't figured at all in this behaviour. And also, how eating beef has resulted in lynching and even murder. Please don't forget to jump over to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. And please don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review to get the podcast in front of more eyes. This podcast is made possible thanks to paleocanteen.co.uk, which is my company. Paleocanteen.co.uk is the UK's one-stop paleo and low-carb food provider, where you can get restaurant-quality meals, grass-fed Scottish beef and lamb, outdoor bread pork and a selection of paleo and low-carb products delivered chilled to your door. That's paleocanteen.co.uk. Use the code CANTEEN15, that's C-A-N-T-E-E-N-1-5, to get 15% off your first order. Thanks and enjoy the show. Okay, and we're recording. And I'm lucky enough to have with me today Dr. Sylvia Carpagam. Am I saying that correctly? Yes. Um, who is a, an Indian public health doctor, writer, illustrator, um, and researcher. And uh, she has an uh, interreligion, intercaste, and interlanguage background. So I'm really looking forward to talking to you. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Ali. Thank you so much for having me on the show. And uh, I think I was quite inspired by the last uh, uh, show that you had with Dr. Asim. So I thought it's really important that more and more people speak out uh, because there is quite a lot at stake. So thank you for doing this. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I suppose what you're talking about is um, the headline would be uh, vegetarianism in India. And I, I first saw you. Uh, online with an excellent article on vegetarianism in India, which really stunned me, partly because of the shocking statistics around malnutrition that you talked about, and partly because I'd never seen an Indian person speak out against vegetarianism. Um, and you're talking about the, the yeah. episode of the podcast that I did with uh, Dr. Asim Malhotra. Um, yeah, you did mention it there as well. He, did, he mentioned it. Yes, yes, that's right. And so maybe you could start by just saying, what's the situation with vegetarianism in India? Um, first of all, I think it's a myth that India is a vegetarian country. Uh, there is enough data, there's enough uh, published data and scientific uh, research evidence that uh, many Indians are actually uh, meat eaters. And uh, even those who give information, like we do have large scale surveys in India, and those who give out the information, some of them don't disclose that they are vegetarian. So 
if you factor that in as well, there's a paper uh, published by uh, uh, a researcher called Balmurli Natarajan. If you, ha you can, you know, get to speak to him also, it would be really interesting. Um, where they say that <clears throat> factoring those who may not have disclosed that they are meat eaters, you have almost um, uh, eighty percent of India that is a meat eating. It's um, and that includes eggs and you know all the other like poultry and all the other meats so we, we do have uh, a majority who are meat eaters so the it's a myth first of all that india is a vegetarian country but if you look at the politics around it and if you look at the way caste and uh, uh, i wouldn't even say religion because even uh, a lot of people from the majority religion that is hinduism in india do eat eggs to eat uh, poultry, to eat other meats. And uh, it's a caste thing. You have uh, a dominant caste group uh, who are, uh, you know, who choose to be vegetarian for whatever religious reasons. Uh, it includes, you know, there are some groups like the Lingayats and the Jains who are vegetarian. And, uh, but the way the, but the way the caste system operates is um, the majority of people who are in power, who are making decisions, who are representing India, uh, who migrate outside and who speak on behalf of India, are the same caste group. So it's almost like uh, the group that is in power decides and dictates what India is projected as. So I think that I think it's important to understand that. It, like uh, a lot of times. Uh, the the outside world kind of buys into this and uh, they say that you know india is a vegetarian country uh, you there was a recent conference also the there was a eat lancet conference where uh, this person i think he was brent loken uh, he's some scientist with the eat lancet group and he said india can lead the way for you know plant-based foods so a lot of people are not just buying into this myth, they're actually feeding off this whole myth that India is vegetarian. I mean, um, for, for people, including myself, who don't really understand the caste system, um, how is it different from, uh, how does it differ from religion? You know, do the castes intersect religion? And how many castes are there? And what does it mean to be um, part of a caste that's, uh, ve that's vegetarian, is it, and are some of the castes purely vegetarian, or is it a mixture there too? <clears throat> so, uh, if you look, if you look at the caste system, it's it's a it's a kind of a hierarchical system, and uh, you have the you have the Brahmins, the Kshatriyas, uh, the Vaishyas, and then the Shudras, and all of them fall within the caste system. So, but even among them, it, the Brahmins are considered as you know, superior and the, uh, the the grade of you know, as you go down the ladder, so to speak, your uh, status kind of comes down in the caste hierarchy. But then you also have a large group that falls outside this whole caste system, who are are called the you know uh, scheduled castes, or you know they were called the untouchables, or, or who identify as dalits. So they don't even fall within the caste system. And um, uh, over time, 
a lot of people have converted to other religions in India. So you have people uh, converting to Islam or uh, Christianity. So you do get a cross section of <clears throat> different uh, caste groups, uh, but you do get a lot of the Dalits who have converted to say Islam and Christianity. And in India, a lot of this hierarchy is also transferred to the religion of conversion. So definitely there are practices of casteism within the you know, Christian community and within the Muslim community. So um, I would say that caste kind of cross cuts across religions in India. Okay. And I mean, would I be right in thinking that some of the Dalit um, or scheduled caste people uh, you said that maybe more of them have converted to other religions than Hinduism. I mean, I can understand why if, if they were called untouchables, why you, they might not feel wanted. Yeah, I, I think the, to some extent, um, I, I don't know a lot about what's happening in, or has happened is, in Islam, so I wouldn't like to uh, you know, comment on that. But definitely uh, uh, with Christianity, uh, conversion has brought some amount of dignity and uh, in terms of access to education itself. I think a lot of uh, first generation and second generation people who have converted to Christianity have had access to good quality education uh, because I think the mission schools have uh, played quite an important role in providing education and also access to English. So I think uh, having access to English is in a way has opened up uh, the doors for, uh, you know, the Dalit community to be able to uh, access jobs. Uh, apart from that, the government has uh, a system of reservation where, you know, in government jobs, it's like affirmative action, uh, where in government jobs, uh, people, uh, there is a, a percentage of, you know, the jobs reserved for people from uh, Dalit communities, but it's not available if you convert it. So a Dalit Christian or a Dalit Muslim would not be able to access these uh, government benefits. Interesting. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's park the caste system for a moment and maybe you could outline the picture of malnutrition in India. What's the situation? It's so it, the the way we see malnutrition is <clears throat> you you have uh, you have uh, undernutrition. You also have obesity. So obesity is like becoming a growing problem in India. But the major part of our nutrition problem is still undernutrition. And uh, undernutrition is uh, basically that uh, children are not. Uh, uh, gaining weights as they expected to for their age. And you also have stunting, which is children are not reaching the heights that they expected to reach for a certain age. And uh, this is almost 38 to 40% in India. That means uh, in children who are say zero to six years. That means uh, under six years, most children, uh, like 38 to 40% of children have not reached their expected heights and expected weights. So it's, it's, it's quite a huge problem. And this is particularly more even in um, the scheduled caste, the scheduled tribe 
Muslim communities. Wow, that's a huge issue. I mean, I think sometimes when we talk about nutrition and sometimes at the extremes, you're talking about small communities, but India has roughly a billion yeah. people, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the schedule cast... In terms cast, of our food numbers, yeah, it's a huge problem. It's a huge problem. It's a, it's a, it's a sizable slice of uh, humanity. Um, yeah, and, and, you- and, and that is in, in children, but if you look at adults, there's also something called the chronic energy deficiency where people still are not getting enough nutrition to perform like, uh, I mean, you need, you need energy to, uh, to maintain your weight, but you also need energy to perform your you know, day-to-day uh, activities and to do work. So a lot of them, like almost 30% women have a chronic energy deficiency. So because they're not able to compromise on uh, the work that they do and, uh, and the basic functions of their body, they compromise on their weights. So you will see a lot of uh, people who are very thin, very emaciated um, because they just haven't got enough food to eat. And besides chronic energy deficiency and stunting in children, you've spoken about anemia before as well. And that's a big problem in India, right? So, yeah. So apart from that, you also have multiple um, micronutrient deficiencies. You have people who are anemic, you have people who are deficient in zinc and, uh, you know, vitamin A. But but the problem is uh, when you start looking at these as like isolated uh, deficiencies, then people start looking for very, uh, uh, you know, non-sustainable solutions. So, for example, if uh, you said someone has anemia, the government responds by saying that we give you iron tablets, but just iron tablets may not be enough. It's not like the body takes iron and it's just iron that's being converted into, you know, hemoglobin. Is the whole process that is required to convert iron to hemoglobin and for it to be functional you need like a good quality proteins you need zinc you need vitamins uh, you know you need a whole set of nutrients uh, for the body to function adequately and just um, uh, you know minimizing it by saying this is you know this deficiency or that deficiency is a problem but then the solution becomes to just replace that and the way the the government or corporates try to replace it is by you know fortifying foods or they say they package foods or they process foods and they say with added vitamins and with added minerals and you know added iron now uh, britannia is quite a big company in uh, india they're saying we will give iron fortified biscuits to children because this anemia is a problem, but you, one can see why that cannot be a solution. It ha- it's, it's problematic on multiple fronts. Yeah, children aren't anemic because they have a biscuit deficiency, right? Yeah, true. And, and look, at, look at what it does to the eating habits of children. What are you teaching children? What are you doing about the culture of eating, the tradition of eating? 
the the you know the memory or the cultural memory of what people are used to it, the, all those things play quite an important role and to when once you reduce it to a nutrient then your solutions also become very nutrient specific and it, it becomes uh, it really opens the door for markets um, and uh, it, it, all of these are very market friendly uh, solutions beyond that they're not solution they're not long-term solutions sure that's a good point i think because when you can create a shelf stable cheaply produced product that has the backing of public health officials uh, that you can sell at a, uh, a really good markup then um I mean, probably almost across the board, those types of products are unlikely to be nutritious. Yeah, in fact, they say that the the, the the like once you once you fortify, you you bring in a shelf life. But sometimes a lot of foods may not have a shelf life. But then fortification brings in a shelf life. It changes the taste. It increases the cost. And in in India, if you see a lot of uh, food is locally produced like for example you grow some wheat you take it to your local uh, the grinders they'll grind it for you they'll powder it for you and you'll take it back and you know you lose it at your own home but once you bring in this idea of labeling and packaging and fortification it'll become almost mandatory it'll become illegal for people to you know just uh, do things locally they will have to send their grains to a company which will then process it and you know fortify it and label it for you and then package it and then market it back to you um, at much bigger cost than what you actually need to spend and we're actually seeing that with, uh, with a lot of the grains that uh, people used to keep aside for their own consumption it's now not becoming available to people you know in their own communities hmm so there's this problem with malnutrition. Uh, what do you think can be done? What can be done about malnutrition? Well, I mean, is some malnutrition simply down to poverty or is the specific type of food more important? What do you think? So if you look at uh, guidelines uh, uh, brought by uh, say so we have the National Institute of Nutrition in India, which is a, a research body, and it also uh, gives a lot of recommendations on nutrition. Uh, if you look at the research, the research clearly shows that the solutions are already available. Um, if 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 uh, if you're looking at uh, you know the requirements, say for a child or a pregnant woman, then the, the kind of foods that have to be given to address uh, malnutrition and also to address micronutrient deficiencies it does include a large uh, it does include animal foods it includes eggs it includes milk and milk products but once these are out as recommendations or the way these recommendations are implemented or uh, interpreted that's where the vegetarian or the caste bias comes in. It's actually a prejudice where the the interpretation is 
India is predominantly vegetarian and therefore people can't afford these animal foods and therefore they can eat these vegetables. They can eat green leafy vegetables. Or Indians uh, can't, uh, anyway don't eat meat, they anyway can't afford it. It's expensive, animal foods are expensive. And instead of saying make animal foods more accessible and more available and more affordable to people, what you're saying is you can't eat it, so you know we are not going to recommend it. And then it becomes very cereal-based, very cereal-heavy. And the government actually has a lot of schemes, like nutrition schemes for the country. Most of them are very cereal-dependent. Like you have rice and you have wheat and you have millets. But beyond that, there's very little that food that is subsidized for people. And uh, if you, the question is always asked, then why are vegetarians healthy? If you, if you look at secular trends on height, the vegetarians have been showing a steady increase in height. And uh, so then the question is, how can they maintain you know, a steady increase in height? And that's because they do have access to a lot of animal uh, foods like milk and milk products. So they have a lot of paneer and a lot of curd and uh, you know, ghee and butter. But these, they, for some reason, they, do, they don't call it uh, animal source food. They say it's still vegetarian. And so the, that's, the, that's the parts of the castes that uh, stay vegetarian who, are, who have more money. That's the, the more... Yeah, um, it's, it's, and socially, yeah, they, they, much, they have much better jobs. They have much better incomes. And uh, these foods uh, like milk and milk-based products are, are quite expensive. And uh, the kind of vegetarianism that is being uh, promoted for the poor is devoid of all of these sources of nutrition. Uh, and uh, if you look at the way the calculations happen of you know uh, income, minimum income or poverty line, it's, uh, it doesn't factor in all of these. They don't say a family should be able to afford say meat and chicken and eggs and milk, you know, at this quantity uh, for you know, so many days in a week and then fix a, a minimum wage. They remove all of these and fix the minimum wage. So it, people cannot afford a lot of these, uh, uh, you know, the foods, of the animal sources that the rich vegetarians can afford. Mm-hmm. And so this is where the, the role of um, caste really comes into comes into it in a big way because it's not it's clearly not just about poverty when you've got a disproportionate number of um, poorer people in these castes that are yeah. succumbing to the malnutrition, uh, chronic energy deficiency, anemia problems. And so that means that there's something going on in the home and in public where the caste um, hierarchy is being imposed. So how does that actually happen in uh public and in private and do you think it differs in public and in private <clears throat> if if um, um i mean i i don't i don't i don't know if there's a difference uh, in, in public and private but i can give you a few examples of how this you know operates 
so uh, firstly uh, it's it's made out to be a religious thing so there is uh, instead of saying it's a one caste group that is vegetarian then the narrative is that uh, most hindus don't eat meat most hindus are vegetarian which is not true and uh, if if you look at Mm, the, the the religion that that's how there there is a kind of uh, criminalization of communities that eat you know like beef for for instance the the muslims and the christians uh, and the dalits who are who are you know who consume beef uh, there is a, uh, what 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 do you say these foods are considered as inferior Mm-hmm. they they considered as somehow uh, catering to your baser you know instincts and the because the food is inferior then the people who eat them are also inferior so it it kind of reinforces this whole idea of purity and pollution and that the vegetarians are pure and clean and you know the touchable and the meat eaters the beef eaters are you know impure and polluted and untouchable and um, uh, i think uh, so there is a lot of shame around uh, you know eating foods that people are traditionally used to eating in their homes and we've seen that operating like we parents say that our children eat uh, beef or meat at home and once they take it to school and schools there is a whole system that operates to make the child feel that this is not good it's it's dirty whatever you eating the child is made fun of and within a few uh, weeks of doing that the child itself says i don't want to take this food the child itself says i don't want to take meat from home to the schools and this puts a lot of uh, you know pressure on the parents because the children also bring those learnings back home and they say that they they try to kind of te- encourage their families not to eat this food and uh, the other thing that we're seeing is that um uh, meat eating is kind of linked to uh, intelligence so children are told that if you want to study well and if you want to do well and if you want to become a meritorious student then give up eating meat and become vegetarian so children have said that if we eat meat our bodies grow and if we eat vegetables and our brains grow so this is and if you look at the kind of caste and class profile of the teachers and principals most of them come from these same communities because the the kind of social capital they've already access education they've already access resources and they're the critical mass in all of these spaces interesting and i suppose that's a really powerful location for um legitimizing information you know if it if if it's if it's systemic in the school system then it's almost taken to be fact and i guess there's <laughs> more extreme examples that you hear about where people are uh physically hurt or killed and it's to do with um meat eating i mean how does that come about and where does that come about so so 
Uh, first of all, beef has been banned in many states in India. The slaughter of beef and uh, the the atmosphere has been created where they say that uh, you shouldn't be eating beef for whatever reasons. And then it becomes a way of targeting certain communities. So there, there have been a lot of lynchings in the last uh, two years, three years in India, where people, they don't even have to possess beef. It's even the suspicion of possessing beef. So like people who, they've, they've had crowds swarming into their houses and saying, you have meat in your house, you have beef in your house, and they've been lynched. And the, the whole system operates to collude with that and say, he was, you know, that he had beef, so it's okay for him to be lynched. And by lynch, you know, do you that, mean like in the in the American sense where mob. they're they're hanged? No, no, no. A mob of people just surround, uh, you know, one man or two or three men, uh, basically beat them to death. It's uh, it's it's yeah. It's quite uh, quite a few such instances, and these are filmed and shared with other people it's it's basically to you know to create an identity that you know this person has you know killed a cow and eaten a cow and he he he, he needs to be punished and so you have mobs which decide that this person has to be punished it's another matter that india exports a large amount of beef to other countries i didn't know that a lot of yeah, a, a lot of uh, uh, income for India comes through this export of beef to other countries. So yeah, that's the kind of double standards that's operating. <clears throat> I um, I've I've read you pick up on, and you've said it earlier about purity and purity. You know, cleanliness, uncleanliness, and I suppose the the kind of uh, more Indian sattvic, tamasic sort of um, a dichotomy, and yeah. That you've said before that it's really what's going on with vegetarianism in India is an agenda about maintaining a, a hierarchical status quo. So it's about control and it's about humiliating uh, the meat eater um, into this self-imposed state of inferiority. And that nowhere does a love of animals figure in this, in this behavior. Um, yeah. You know, do you, do you see anywhere where it's a um, a compassionate thing that's going on? So, I mean, I I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to comment on that because uh, if it's it's now being made into a love of animals, so I I really wouldn't you know be able to say no, it's not it's not a love of animals, but like just just two days back, there was this article in, in one of our, you know, mainstream uh, media. It was a Hindu. And it was this lady who claims to be a lawyer, an environmentalist, and an animal lover of uh, cattle ranching. And then she, she talks about... Um, uh, meat eating and she talks about antibiotics and then she says if you really love animals then you shouldn't be you know 
eating animals. So uh, I see that it's it's partly being used in a way, but sometimes the, the motives become important, the real reasons or the intent becomes important. And uh, it's it's very hard to argue with someone who says, you know, I feel I feel sorry for the animal. And that's why that's why I don't want you to eat it. But then uh, you're also killing people and you're also abusing people and also harassing people in the name of you know love or concern for an animal. So it's uh, you know it's <laughs> it sometimes it just doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's it's impossible to truly know what someone's intent is. And I guess you have to go on good faith and uh, not second guess people and just take their word for it. But like you hinted at there, the issue really is when you, you, you tell someone that you're doing something for your own reasons, then if you're not hurting anyone, then whose business is it? But if you, tell someone that you should be doing something because of their reasons, then that's a different matter. And that's what's going on here. It's, um, it's coercion, which seems to be causing malnutrition. And it's for the, uh, the reasons of the, the people who are not malnourished. And that's, that's your main problem with it, isn't it? It is, yes. Uh, if, and if you look at the... The midday meal scheme, that is a, a scheme that has been mandated by, uh, you know, under the National Food Security Act. So it's a legal right of the child to have a midday meal. Uh, and it's uh, for children between 6 to 14 years. Basically, uh, there are a whole set of guidelines where the child is uh, a government school or even a government supported school should provide the child with a hot cooked meal prepared at the school and with uh, around 450 to 700 uh, you know uh, calories and about 12 to 20 grams of protein so that like almost meets one third of the child's needs and eggs play a very important role here because eggs a 60 gram egg gives almost eight grams of protein it's highly nutritious it's uh, the bioavailability of proteins is very high so much so it's considered as a reference protein and uh, culturally, if you look at the sorry, can I just can I just add, before we before you go on there about the midday meals, can I just pick up on that point about a reference protein? So it's yeah. it's so bioavailable bio protein from eggs that it's called a reference protein. Now this this point gets debated to to a lot about quality of protein. What would be a couple of examples of proteins that wouldn't qualify as reference proteins? Uh, so the protein from cereal, from soya bean, <clears throat> from pulses, they 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 wouldn't uh, qualify as reference proteins. Uh, breast milk and eggs are the only ones that um, have very high bioavailability, almost close to hundred percent. So how, what how about how about how about meat? Uh, meat is about 78%, I think. Interesting. And the pulses and so on would be about the same as that or lower? or? Uh, I, I wouldn't be able to give you the exact numbers, so I can refer and you know get back to you on this. 
Yeah, that'd be good. We could link yeah, something. Um, yeah, sorry. So you were saying that you've got this high quality uh, egg uh, protein uh, as an option, but maybe that's not what's happening in the midday yeah, meal. Yeah. So, so the the in in many uh, states, the eggs are not being given. And when we approach our own government and ask them why you're not giving eggs to children. The reason they gave us that it's for religious reasons. So the the thing is that most of the children who access government schools eat eggs. Almost ninety eight percent of them eat eggs. They like eggs, and uh, they're being denied that. So the the whole idea of uh, you know a scientific meal, a nutritious meal, is being de derailed by for non-scientific reasons so um even though so is there any pretense from people who are making these decisions that it's about nutrition so they so they say that uh see so for instance the 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 midday meal scheme has been contracted out by the government to uh uh, an, um, another an organization and that organization <clears throat> refuses to use onions or garlic or provide eggs in the meal and the the reason i mean they themselves don't like i mean they don't eat eggs they don't promote eggs but they also think onions and garlic is are uh, uh, what you said uh, they're tamasic they, they increase lust in the children and they reduce concentration in the children. Now, the, the government has a prescribed menu and this organization is violating the prescribed menu, but is still able to get away with it. So it's, it's so who do you blame? Like, it, it's, of course, the government is a primary responsible and the government uh, has to factor in these, in these things. But clearly, the nutritional needs of the child are not the priority of the government. It's really interesting that you, you talk about the, the Tamasic um, side of things. So it's like Satvic Tamasic is the kind of, um, it's, it's, um, it's Ayurvedic uh, medical terms, is that right? Or, you know, kind of spiritual terms so that Satvic food would be, or Satvic people would be calm. Um, kind um and the foods that go along with them which which don't necessarily have a basis in scientific reality would be things like vegetables and nuts and so on and the tamasic foods like you said inflame lust and um are uh or are, you know paradoxically as well seemingly lazy people and uh you know um it would be things like uh, meat and fish and um, eggs as well. Eggs yeah. are considered to be the menstrual discharge of the hen. Right. So you've got these, you, you've got this sort of um, uh, uh, heavenly devilish kind of um, dichotomy. And it's similar in a way to the Seventh-day Adventists who, you know, uh, whose teachings informed the formation of Kellogg's who... Um, wanted to make uh, grain-based uh, food to 
dampen down the libido of a of a devilish youth and um or a devilish populace and it sounds very similar um it's really interesting how these things seem to spring up in multiple places i mean do you think that vegetarianism in the west bears a resemblance to vegetarianism in india one point i want to make about the i mean the uh, to add to the previous point the indian institutions itself have showed that onion and garlic improve the bioavailability of or bioabsorption of iron and zinc so we i mean we've talked about how uh, deficiency of iron and zinc is quite a problem in india and uh, this these are one of the few uh, vegetarian foods which actually increase the you know absorption of uh, iron and zinc and uh, they being called as tamasic and being denied to children who are you know malnourished and who are culturally used to eating these foods so yeah coming back to your other point uh, i've uh, only recently been like become aware of this whole uh, issue that's happening around veganism uh, in the west and uh, the the eat lancet group recently had a conference here in india and that's definitely a cause for concern because they uh, to come to a country where there's uh, you know so much malnutrition so much anemia uh, so much of vitamin a deficiency to come here and say that you are a model for plant based food that's what the, this person uh, from eat lancet said he said india is a model for plant based food and in uh, um, this veganism should be promoted among the adolescents so you're you're talking about some kind of an indoctrination <clears throat> and you're talking about it in a country where there's so much of you know caste based uh issues around food and uh, so much of malnutrition and so much of anemia so it, it's it seems um, not just uninformed but it seems very unethical to you know to talk uh, in a country like india about veganism but it seems to be uh, there are there are many groups of people who are promoting it so you have the global alliance for improved nutrition which is a conglomeration of corporates like you know danone and nestle and uh, coca cola and you know all the uh, all the vegan health foods yeah so they they are uh, collaborating with uh, the food safety standards authority of india and eat lancet now fssa is going in for fortification a big way they want to fortify rice and they want to fortify wheat and oils and milk so it's uh, yeah it, it, I, i don't think um, there are clear boundaries in terms of you know countries uh, i think what decisions are made in some countries do affect uh, countries like india and uh, to talk about uh, asking indians to consume less meat or to you know reduce their meat consumption because of con- concerns with the climate i think it's really ironic because here people hardly eat it's even though they would like to eat like if you go to a, a chicken shop say in uh, in india 
you see there is a hierarchy in what people buy also the the well off people might buy the you know boneless chicken or the breast piece or the thigh or the leg and as you go down further down the economic scale there are people buying the neck or the wings or you know spare parts and they just spend like very little money they'll say just give me a few grams of you know spare parts uh, because they want to you know make a meal for for their children and uh, the quantity eaten is very little and the 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 environmental concerns are quite uh, huge in india but to attribute all of that to meat eating i think again it's very unethical to do that so if if you look at just just today there was an article published by the all india institute of medical sciences where they said uh, heavy metals and toxins contaminate our food a lot of the issues that people are facing health issues can be attributed to heavy metal poisoning and if you see the kind of pollution control uh, the uh, the control of industrial waste it's very poor it's very poorly regu regulated a lot of untreated industrial waste is actually going into our water it's contaminating our groundwater mm, and that's untreated water is being used to water crops so all these issues are you know just pushed aside and you you just pretend that that's not contributing to you know the health problems and you just uh, say meat is your problem in your country and you know you should go vegan it's it's very problematic that these kind of discussions are even happening yeah and i think it's really interesting that you point out that it's not so much a national um border bar a barrier it's more of a um corporate uh domain and i've just been watching the documentary uh the century of self and it's about um the work that edward bernays did um the nephew of uh of uh, uh sigmund freud and okay. um he really invented public relations and took the, the, the sort of mass psychology of, uh, of uh, corporate um, advertising strategy to a whole new level, um, you know, managed to convince women to smoke and um, with this brilliant ad campaign. And really, I think that's evolved a lot in the last hundred years. And we've got to the stage now where it's really difficult to know who to trust because you don't know where that information is coming from, whether it's a legitimate individual who's acting on their own um, intelligence or whether it's someone who's, who's being paid to say things that back up what Coca-Cola and Nestle and so on want them to say. And it's, it's, it was only rational. If I was a, an executive at a corporation, that's what I would be doing because it's it works exactly and if i was just i was just thinking today some of them have such like they, they legitimize themselves by you know calling themselves foundations or charities and uh, like you have this global alliance for improved nutrition and you know you have um, a lot of these the groups the, the face they present to the public 
and there's no guidelines on stating conflict of interest upfront. Like, what are you affiliated to? Who are you affiliated to? Who's going to profit? Which markets are you connected to? Which corporates? Which companies? Uh, there's nothing out of out, you know, in the open, and it's very hard to expect. Even doctors or you know public health people or uh, civil society to be able to keep snooping around and the minute someone catches on to some of these things and they change their name so there are, there are actually no you know global guidelines for these kind of ethics and it's it's being abused it's they they, they just project themselves as a very you know charitable front and if you see like a lot of government offices these groups have so much access like we want a meeting you know as citizens you want a meeting with the government and it's so difficult to access these kind of government uh, you know decision making processes but all these companies uh, we've seen that with health and we've seen that with you know the food industry also they just have an open door policy for this kind of and i also think the government itself sometimes may not be informed they just fall for all this you know the scale of these groups and the way they promote themselves make the market themselves i don't think even governments are prepared or understand like what's happening and we saw that like uh, uh, with spirulina is a, a product that uh, some companies were trying to give to malnourished children. These children weren't even eating food. They weren't even being given food, um, you know, in the Anganwadi's, uh, you know, that's that's integrated child development scheme for children who are less than six years. They were being given these spirulina capsules by companies. And these were malnourished children. There's absolutely no research, you know, what is the effect of this? Where has it been grown? What is the quality control? The government said, you know, they're giving it free of cost and they said it helps malnutrition. So, you know, we, we just okay with it. So I think that that is a big part of the problem. Yeah, absolutely. Where, where do you think is the, the greatest hope for public discussion of nutrition? The greatest hope? Yeah. If there's so many bad things at the moment yeah i mean as as far as i see there's a lot of community knowledge and there's a lot of traditional knowledge there's also a lot of research at least in india like one can't fault the research that's available and the the, the kind of knowledge that's available with the communities is just that between these there's a problem like this, the, the 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 research is not reaching the community, and uh, the, the community needs are not being factored into policy. So I think if there's more of sharing of actual research on you know good foods with people, people will make the right choices, and many times it reinforces what they're already doing. Like we've heard loads of mothers saying that, like even my own dad was talking about his mom she she had to raise a you know eight children and she, they weren't well very well off and she, they they used to have she used to make dried fish for them dried fish uh, is is not very expensive 
So you, and it's very flavorful. Some people like the flavor and some people don't like it, but it kind of enhances the flavor of the food. So you just add a little of it. Children eat much more quantities. So to then to say that is, you know, it's impure and it's polluted and you know it's it's unhealthy, it's bad for the environment, it, it puts a lot of burden on the communities. And in fact, it erases even the kind of cultural memory that people have of good eating practices. Hmm. Yeah, that's obviously an issue because that can disappear within a generation. Yeah. And, and and I think encouraging local foods, like if the government can, uh, you know, give loans to people to grow their own poultry, to grow their own eggs, let's apply the local schools and the local anganwadis, feed the local communities. It It's kind of environmentally also very viable. It's it's very sustainable and it's very nutritious. It, it takes away the dependence on say, a company or a corporate but then everything in the system is working to do exactly the opposite you're doing everything to take away people's self-reliance um, and making them more and more dependent on you know very centralized a very um, homogeneous uh, corporate kind of uh, you know food system mm-hmm. i mean sometimes i I uh, hear people talk about how you can't, you mustn't blame this on companies. And I, I hear what they're saying, which I think is something like companies are not to blame for doing what companies are designed to do. And I sort of get that argument. But on the other hand, you know, I think that will be, I think that'll ultimately be their, their undoing because companies that do stuff really well that don't hurt people, like, um, I don't know, um, sports equipment manufacturers or uh, airplane manufacturers, you know, where them making things which people enjoy and are good for their health, <laughs> ultimately, um, don't kill them, um, will drive profits. I think in the longer term, if uh, veganism is adopted or vegetarianism and veganism is adopted even more widely, and I don't think at the moment in the in the UK it's that popular. I think the the the, the voices are a lot louder than the numbers um, are large. But okay. um, the uh, I think you know eighty five percent or so of vegetarians and vegans um, come away from it uh, within a couple of years, and um, I think. The more people who try it, the more people realize that it actually can cause pretty severe health problems. And um, that to me is, is a hope. I, I would rather that people didn't have to go through that, of course. But I think inevitably that's what's going to happen. And no matter how much people are told that it wasn't the food they were eating because vegetarianism or veganism can't be unhealthy, that they're not going to... Um, they're going to they're going to trust their own instincts in the end. Um, I mean, I I I don't know if I would agree or or be that hopeful in the sense, uh, if you look at what's happening with sugar, and uh, say for example diabetes and refined foods, it's uh, you know a person has been diagnosed with with diabetes. There's no system that's that's in place to tell them. You know, these are your choices. You're, on the one hand, 
you're, you're giving people access to a lot of these, you know, sugars and, you know, unrefined uh, or refined carbohydrates. And you're not, and you're not telling them that, you know, the solution to your problem is, um, you know, to give up these and to, you know, have more of uh, natural or animal-based foods. And in India, we're seeing that a lot, a lot of that, and I think it's, it's happening in the West also, but because of all the ill health uh, due to malnutrition, it's becoming more and more medicalized. The, the solution is, oh, you, you know, you have this problem, therefore you take this medicine, or you take this vitamin, or you take this drop. And then how do you break that cycle? So it's, I think putting information out to people is, is really important, which is, like one of the reasons why I'm like doing this, it's uh, I'm not great on you know audio or video, but I just thought it's at least um, it's important the message goes out. Um, it's it, if I've I've spoken to lots of people, I go to colleges or schools, and I talk to civil society, and there's such a little understanding, you know, of how food and health is linked how bad eating can affect your health. People just get trapped into that cycle of bad eating and then bad health. And either way, it's the, you know, the corporates and the pharma that's, that's benefiting. So it's, it's the, there are voices, uh, but I don't think they're as loud um, and they should get louder. I think uh, offering spaces. And I think that's why what you're doing is, is really important because you're offering a space for people, you know, bring out a counter narrative and challenge some of these things that uh, almost becoming like mainstream uh, beliefs. Yeah, but yeah, I guess with veganism, you're right. It's it's not uh, it's it's not as big as they project it to be. And uh, in fact, um, I was thinking that vegetarians wouldn't really adopt veganism because it means involving giving up dairy and dairy products. And uh, definitely, I don't think vegetarians would give up on that. Yeah, I think so. I know a lot. I know a few vegetarians who are big cheese addicts and um, yeah. fair enough. Um, yeah, and I, I agree with you that there's a huge place for trusted voices saying, yeah. giving out information like doctors um, who have clinical experience and um, those are the people who really get listened to and rightly so, you know, there's, I think um, there's a, there's a big place for people to teach themselves things. And I think that's right. But I think um, there's, there are mechanisms that uh, people without training don't necessarily know about so that, if um, if someone was to give out detailed nutrition advice to someone without taking a personal history, then they could hurt them. And yeah. um, so I think doctors making uh, scientifically based statements is a big part of a, the solution. Yes. And what what, um, what do you eat? What do I eat? Yeah. Uh, I, I eat everything, pretty much everything. I uh, visited India once and uh, went in the north to Delhi and then up further north to uh, Himachal Pradesh. Okay. In the Himalaya. And okay. it was beautiful up there. Um, 
the the food wasn't great on the trek, but everything was in a tin, so okay. it's to be expected. But um, I do love Indian food so much. What what's your favorite couple of dishes? I like biryani, like uh-huh. all kinds of biryani. But yeah, it has to have meat in it. And uh, my brother makes like some really good steaks, beef steaks and pork. Um, yeah, so just a little bit of everything. Sorry. A little bit of everything. Yeah, I mean, I just eat. Uh, yeah, whatever. I'm not a great connoisseur of food. <laughs> and do you think there's a, an ideal human diet? Do you think that exists? Yeah, I think um, no processing, uh, locally sourced, uh, varied, uh, yeah, as diverse as possible. Uh, Try to get as many nutrients as possible from as many foods as possible. And uh, I mean, there are food groups, right? you you have your i think i think in india definitely cutting down on the carbs would be a good idea on the cereals uh, more of protein uh, more of animal protein lots of milk especially for children uh, because it's definitely associated with uh, heights and uh, we need yeah we need we need people to eat better uh, we need people to grow taller we need people to have more energy to be able to, you know, put on weight and also to do, you know, activities, uh, which is lacking now. Mm. Well, I really enjoyed talking to you um, and I really appreciate you coming on to talk and, uh, you know, tell the, the other side of the story from over there. Uh, yeah, I am. I really enjoyed being on this show. <laughs> I'm sorry I wasn't yeah, prepared for some of the questions, but maybe next time. <laughs> yeah, well, sure. I mean, maybe in a while we can revisit stuff. Actually, um, um, I've, I've had uh, my old physics professor, uh, Ken okay. Strain, on before, and I've recorded an episode with Tucker Goodrich, who I don't know if you're aware of him. He's an American um, uh He's, he's, he's in, he works on Wall Street in tech, but he's, uh, he's a kind of amateur um, researcher as well. And he's got a lot to say. They both have a lot to say about the role of vegetable oils in the health crises around the world. Um, and although they, they're, they're not big fans of grains or sugar, um, okay. they, they, really, they really dislike vegetable oils. So... Um, they're they're both coming back on soon uh, to do a, a special episode. So I definitely want to, you know, I think things change all the time in uh, in the world of food. So it'd be good to it'd be good to revisit India in a in a while when maybe when uh, there's some some new developments. Yeah, definitely, and there are loads of other people you can talk to. So I could yeah put you in touch with them. That would be great. Yeah, yeah, have different voices about the issues yeah definitely so where can people find you if they want to read more about your stuff so i have a blog called random thoughts 
And yeah, I'm also on Twitter at Saki339. That's S-A-K-I-E-339. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll link it in the in the show notes and when I, I put the, the episode out. But I will sign off just now and say thanks again. Okay, thank you, Ali. Thank you so much for having me on the show and look forward to many more episodes from you. Thanks, Sylvia. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please don't forget to jump over to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. And please don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review to get the podcast in front of more eyes. This podcast is made possible thanks to paleocanteen.co.uk, which is my company. Paleocanteen.co.uk is the UK's one-stop paleo and low-carb food provider, where you can get restaurant-quality meals, grass-fed Scottish beef and lamb, outdoor bread pork, and a selection of paleo and low-carb products delivered chilled to your door. That's paleocanteen.co.uk. Use the code canteen 15 that's C-A-N-T-E-E-N-1-5 to get 15% off your first order. Thanks, and see you next time.